Well, a number of years ago on a Christian radio show called Back to the Bible, they had a teacher named Woodrow Kroll. They had a number of teachers over the years. I first got listening to Back to the Bible when Warren Wearsby, who just passed away a little while ago, was the speaker there. And then I think somewhere along the line, maybe right after, Woodrow Kroll took his place. But whenever Kroll would end his show, he would always sign off with these words. He would say, have a good and godly day. For what, val- or what lasting value is a good day if it is not also a godly day? And I thought of that when I read the section that we've arrived at this morning as we keep making our way through the letter of 1 Peter this summer. And it's specifically 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, that had me thinking of that, where it says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Well, let me read the verses on both sides of that, and then we're going to sort of tease that out a little bit. Follow along as I read 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12, talking about having a good day and a godly day. He says, finally, all of you, so he's summarizing here the section that came before, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing, for... Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So reads the Word of God. What is your definition of a good day? What would need to happen for you to say, this is a great day. Life is good. Where are you? What are you doing? What are the sights? What are the sounds? What are the smells? So this might require you to Close your eyes. You can go ahead and do that if you'd like and sort of get, let your imaginations go a little bit. Maybe you're out on a lake, on a boat, with your fishing gear. Some of you relate to that. Maybe you're in a pool, laying on a floaty, sipping some lemonade. Maybe you're walking along a beach. And there's no bugs. It's sunset. Maybe you're at the top of a mountain on a pair of skis looking over the expanse. Maybe you're in the mountains on the back trails riding a horse. Maybe you're running onto the football field with your team. Maybe you're at summer camp singing camp songs with old and new friends. Maybe you're in a spa all relaxed, getting ready for a treatment. Maybe you're at home. Maybe you're on a deck. You're curled up on a sofa, 
outside reading a book. Or maybe you're on a campground on a long weekend in front of a campfire. I'm thankful that some of you might have been there and left this morning to come to church. Appreciate that. What a day you might be saying. This is life. This is the life. Life is good. We all have those moments in life, don't we? Unfortunately, those moments seem, well, momentary, fleeting at best sometimes. Sometimes those moments are only ever relegated to our imaginations and our dreams. Most of our days aren't like that. At best, we are mired in the ordinary affairs of life. Get up, go to work, come home, eat supper, relax, go to sleep, rinse, and repeat. Or at worst, you might be in a season of difficulty, in a season of hardship, in a season of severe testing and trial, unpredictability, volatility, profound challenges financially or emotionally or spiritually, physically, relationally. For you, good days are very rare. Stressful days are more par for the course in your life. Yet, if somebody were to go in front of a room that we're all sitting in and say those words in verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, raise your hand. I'm sure most of your hands, most of our hands would go up, wouldn't they? Am I right? Yeah. Well, Peter's going to help us with that, but we should realize that this is far from promises of security or promises of, of uh, prosperity or an easy life. First Peter is a letter being written to people who are living in bad days, people for whom life is difficult, people who are living really a nomadic, always-on-the-move life because of mistreatment or impending threats of harm. These people are Christians. They are followers of Jesus Christ. And as such, they are living in a world that is unsafe and dangerous for Christians. They have, in a sense, been taken out of this world spiritually, but they are still living in the world, and they are feeling the hostility of the world. And Peter's really encouraging these people, whom he calls exiles, or aliens, or strangers in this land, to do things that would not come naturally. We've just gone through a section, starting back in chapter 2, verse 13. Actually, a summary, the, the, the front summary is in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, and this is sort of the end summary of that, where Peter has asked them to submit, to be subject to people in places where that would not come naturally, or where, where it would not naturally come easy. As citizens under godless political leadership, in the workplace where employers are unjust, as wives with husbands who do not obey the word, it is not easy to submit under those kinds of conditions. It takes a special kind of person. But in the middle of that section he directs his readers to, ironically, a special kind of person. The most special person ever, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the one who was subject to Caesar. He subjected himself to Caesar willingly. The one who, even though he was the king of kings, would subject himself to the king of the land, to the emperor. The one who suffered unjustly as a servant, even though he was the Lord of lords. The one who hoped in God, even as he was surrounded by disobedient sinners. He's saying that with Christ as our example, and as the one who, whom by his wounds we have been healed, Christians are now enabled to do what they could not naturally do. And furthermore, we can subject ourselves to that kind of unfair or unjust treatment because we can entrust ourselves to God. And God is ultimately just. He is your Father. He will always do what is right and good. He will always glorify Himself and He will always act according to your good if you are one of His children. So we can aim to please Him and to do what is right and good in His sight extending even into suffering, which is what Peter is going to go to next as we look at that in the next number of weeks, Lord willing. But before Peter goes there, he wants to assure us that when we keep our eyes focused on God and on the life to come, even as our, uh, we might have tunnel vision going towards heaven, even as our peripheral vision keeps seeing the present world, the one in which we live, the one that is difficult, the one that is sometimes hostile to our faith. And as we're living there, he wants to ensure us and to encourage us that, us that when we keep our eyes focused on Christ, we can love life and see good days, both here and into the future. And Peter's going to give us a number of ways we can get to the place where we can say that we love life. And that these are good days. And so we want to look at what God prescribes for his people so that even in this world, they can be exactly like that. They can say that. Life is good. This is a great day. We love life and see good days. The first is there in verse 8. And it's really a call for us to be self-giving. As opposed to, be so, as opposed to being self-focused. Selfless as opposed to being selfish. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So back at the beginning, when I gave different suggestions on what would need to happen for you to say, this is a good day, this is the life, did you notice the, that most of them were focused on yourselves? Now, I can't blame you for that, because that's the way I asked it. It was a leading question. It was a little bit of a setup. What would need to happen for you? All my suggestions had you in the center. Whether you were in a pool or a spa or in a mountain or on a field or in a campground, I allowed you to sort of manipulate the conditions in whatever way you wanted so that you could have your dream day. I let you choose whatever you wanted so that you could describe that ideal day, what it looked like, what it felt like, what it smelled like. But did you notice that everything listed in that verse, there in verse 8, is others-centered? It's not just blank characteristics. They're characteristics that are encouraging us to look at others. 
Peter wants these embattled Christians to focus not just on their situation, to not just focus on their circumstances, to not look inward or to be introspective or to feel sorry for themselves. Today we might call that navel-gazing. But to look at others, to feel with others. All five of these characteristics bring out that idea of really thinking about other people and identifying with other people. Especially other people in your church. Other believers. Fellow pilgrims. Fellow aliens in this world. As you do that, you won't have as much time to think about your own struggles. I think that's what Peter is getting at. And you'll be helping other believers who are struggling with the same sort of things that you're struggling with. And they'll likely be able to help you. See how that works? You could say this is a fellowship of the struggling that Peter is encouraging here in verse 8. These five qualities seem to be intentionally listed in this order to work from the outside in. The Bible often does that in poetry. And you can see that in this translation a little bit. The first quality is unity of mind, and the last one is a humble mind. They both talk about how we think about other people. First one just means to be same-minded. We should strive for harmony with our fellow Christians, not just in a, in a general, artificial way where we have the same kinds of likes and dislikes. Sometimes in our church, it's hard for me to find someone who likes the same sports teams. I feel very isolated and alone. But this is talking about being same-minded in regard to eternal things. This is not talking about that meaningless surface stuff. This is talking about eternal things, like our common faith, like agreeing on who Jesus is, like thinking together about what the Bible says, what the gospel is, of what sin is, of how God saves people, being like-minded. And not only are we have unity of mind, but the last one there, together with it, paired with it, is a humble mind, being low-minded, being teachable, rather than prideful. Paul puts both of these qualities together in a couple of places, but listen to Philippians chapter 2. So you've got Peter saying it here, but this is really the, what we might call the apostolic witness, the witness of the apostles. So, so here's Paul in Philippians 2. And actually you can hear not just the first and the last quality, you can hear all of 1 Peter 3.8 in these verses, Philippians 2 verses 1 to 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, there's the third one, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but outward to the interests of others. And where can we find an example of this kind of radical Uh, distinctively Christian thinking? The answer is from our Lord himself. Right after those instructions in Philippians 2, it goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, in addition to other things, made himself nothing, and humbled himself, even becoming a servant. You can see that Peter's trying to get you to think like Christ To be so saturated with Christ that you will now have to look outside yourself. Just like Jesus did in thinking of you. Well, let's keep going. Second on the list was sympathy. 
And fourth, paired with that, was a tender heart. Those two both show that we, how we ought to feel in regard to people. How we ought to feel in regard to other people. These are deep inner emotions that Peter urges us to have in connection with others. In fact, the word tender heart literally means bowels. That's where it came from. It's an anatomical word. Think about that. Well, maybe don't think about that too much. But the, the point is that this is deep in there. Like in the gut. It's digging right into someone else's inner feelings with your inner feelings. Sometimes translated as compassion. Together with sympathy, this encourages us to get into the lives of other people. and To feel what they feel. Again, we need look no further than Jesus as an example of that. Matthew 9, 36, it says he had compassion on the crowds. That's the word there. The word translated compassion is the same word here. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus had compassion on them. He entered into their feelings. Friends, you might be getting harassed. If you are, try this. Rather than strike back, rather than feel sorry for how you're being treated, find someone else who's being treated like that. You are not the only one. And then go and have compassion on them. Be tender-hearted toward them, as Jesus did. Or sympathy, you can think of Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus Christ sets the example for us in all these things. Actually, Peter is so immersed in Jesus' life that he doesn't directly quote from Jesus' words, but this is just filled with Jesus as you read 1 Peter. And in the center of those five is brotherly love. And we really, I think we really need to emphasize this idea of being brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are a family. We sometimes don't emphasize it enough, I fear. In, in our culture, we've been made to think that there is no higher value than our physical families, that we need to put all of our greatest efforts into our families. We say things like the family is under attack, and all those things are true. We do need to put very high value on families in our day. But Jesus actually says some pretty shocking things about his own family in the New Testament. Things like in Matthew ten thirty seven, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And even in another place, he's right in front of his family. They're sort of standing off to the side a little bit. And he says stuff like, that's not my mom over there. They pointed out to him, hey, there's your mom and brothers and sister over there. He says, that's not my mom. Those are my brothers. And he went over and put his hands on his disciples, on his followers, and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus loved his heavenly family. He had a brotherly love. He had a sacrificial kind of love, and he had a brotherly, horizontal kind of love as well. To have brotherly love is the height of this others-centered kind of character. It, it, it transcends our earthly, horizontal, might say more shallow love. It, it sort of digs down further and then extends an unselfish kind of family loyalty to those with whom we share a Heavenly Father. All of you, 
have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, have a tender heart, have a humble mind. This is the godly way, patterned by Jesus himself. Don't look inward, except to grasp onto and to behold Christ, and then extend your mind, extend your heart, extend your hand outward, reaching out to other people, feel with others, and then you will love life and see good days. Well, the second way there is to kill or to crucify or maybe just a better word that you might feel more comfortable, to put away your natural desires. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Do not repay. With verse 8, Peter now has us focused on other people and to give ourselves to them, to feel with them, to spend ourselves on other people rather than looking on our outward circumstances, the things that are going on around us. He's got us in the right place, and so now he can address our natural, sinful inclination to pay back, to, to retaliate when we're treated unfairly, as those Christians were treated back then, as is starting to happen more blatantly and, and, and increasingly blatantly, even in our country and in your workplace and in your school and possibly in your marriage. Our religious freedoms are at stake. Government bills, the policies of school boards and departments of education and other things are threatening to make you compromise your values. They're threatening to intrude into your life and into your Christianity. Our natural tendency, though, is to, when we see those things, is when we start to feel attacked, is what? To to push back, to to fight back, to, to write an angry letter. We naturally want to return evil for evil. We naturally want to repay, to retaliate. I can remember just a little while back when our local government, municipal government here, put a policy in place to remove the opening prayer from council meetings, which was being done on a rotation by local pastors, including, I'm not sure, no, I don't think Pastor Andrew was that, part of that, but I was part of that. Just before he came. But that change to policy was, was announced, actually paraded, um, lauded in our newspaper, in our local newspaper. And I have to confess that my first thought was to write an angry letter to the editor saying that we were being unfairly silenced and giving good reasons why this should not be so, get them to reverse their policy. Well, I have to say that this certainly doesn't happen every time. Usually I do speak before I think. But this time, I, I think the Spirit of God prompted me to wait a little bit before writing, to pause before saying something that would come off as defensive or maybe even angry. So after a little bit of prayer, reflection, I think it was a couple of days, I was led to write something to the editor, indeed. But I ended up writing something way more constructive and conciliatory, something to the effect that I was thankful for the season in which we were able to pray for counsel and that this present policy change would not deter our local churches from praying for, continuing to pray for our mayor and council. Now, I don't say that to blow my own horn and to sound like I've got this thing conquered. I point that out to confess my natural instinct was to pay back was to repay 
evil for evil, to lash out, to show how unfair that policy was. And brothers and sisters, I think we are all like that in our human nature, in our unredeemed human nature. We are born to retaliate. Our natural response to a verse like this is to say, but wait, they deserve to be paid back. We need to get even. But here comes Peter, sort of gently saying, no, no, don't do that. We need to kill that natural response. Peter's reminding us that we belong to God, that we have been redeemed by Jesus. Jesus, the one who just looked back in chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, how did he respond? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's people, don't return evil for evil. We were born for the first time to retaliate, true, but we've been born again to be subject to our authorities, to respond in a radically different and distinctive way. Which brings us to the next point. So that's what we don't do. So how do we then respond to evil and to insult? How do we respond to to reviling? Now that we've been born again to a living hope. Answer? One word here. We bless. We bless. See right there at the end of verse 9? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is actually, we can think of it this way. Think of this as being the Christian version of payback. If they want to be evil, if they want to insult us, bless them. They're not going to like that, actually. Earlier it says that they're going to be silenced if we do good. Blessing might actually serve to silence their evil. Their insults. When I was in elementary school, there was one guy who was the school bully, the school tough guy. His name, I can still remember his name and his face very clearly. He was a very frightening person. His name was Jeff Van Buren. Jeff Van Buren. He'd been in a number of, he used to have schoolyard fights. I don't think they happen anymore, right? Everybody comes and rushes out and breaks things up really fast, and they never did that that fast, you know. And, uh, and so Jeff had taken on all comers. Today we might say he was the alpha dog of our little school. But we had another kid named Dougie. Dougie, I think he goes probably by Doug now, I imagine. But Dougie McGavin. He was the annoying kid who was always talking. Have you seen a kid like that? Maybe you are that kid, I don't know. And that annoyed his talking, his constant blabbering. Always, that annoyed Jeff Van Buren. So Jeff would frequently look to physically silence Dougie. But whenever he did, Dougie would just start laughing <laughs> and talk some more. And it drove Jeff crazy. I can distinctively remember Jeff saying, whenever I beat that kid up, he just keeps on laughing. This is no fun at all. <laughs> no fun to beat up a kid like that. But laughing was Dougie's payback. He didn't fight evil with evil. He just laughed. Well, the Christian way to pay back is to bless. 
bless them, speak well of them. The, the Greek word there is the word that we use for eulogy. Speak well of them, praise them. That illustration breaks down because, of course, because payback should not be our motive for blessing our enemies, right? I'm going to get them back, so I'm going to bless them. We generally want to serve them. And our real hope for them is, as we've been seeing in chapter 2 and in, uh, in the beginning of chapter 3, is that they might be one for the gospel. That they might repent, that they may come to, to Christ in faith. And ultimately, we bless our enemies because we have been so undeservedly blessed by God. Is that not right? Even while we were his enemies? As blessed people, we respond to evil with blessing. We respond to insult with blessing. And the natural result is that you are blessed, or that you may obtain a blessing. Well, number four, how are we blessed when we bless? In verses 10 to 12, Peter actually quotes right back from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, part of the section that Pastor Andrew just read for us. And I kind of asked myself, why would Peter go there? Why did he pick that out of his Bible? Well, the explanation for that psalm, you know, sometimes at the beginning of psalms, there are little explanations, sort of tells the setting in which the psalm was written. Um, those are inspired, by the way. Those aren't added later on. But the explanation for that psalm describes it as a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. As he was being kind and Abimelech laughed, right? It had the, the right effect. But without getting into all the details of that story, Peter picks out an example from his Bible of David. And David at this point was a guy that was on the run. Not from Abimelech. Abimelech was sort of a foreign king. But he was a guy on the run who was being unfairly treated by the king, King Saul. There were a couple of times when David even had the opportunity to take Saul out. But rather than do that, he blessed Saul instead. Well, Psalm 34 is written when David was running for his life. Kind of like those exiles in Peter's day. And so Peter looks to David for how to think during times of pressure, times of hostility, times when we're in stress. The very first words of this psalm, which Peter doesn't say here, is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Starts off with, a, with blessing the Lord. But Peter picks out David's words a little later, and it's those words that we started with. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. How can we love life and see good days? Well, here it is. Let him keep his tongue from evil. So let's make sure we contextualize that a little bit. Let him keep his keyboard from evil, his keypad from evil. So let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let's be people who are committed to the truth. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Keep your tongue from evil. Turn away, or keep keep your tongue from evil. Turn away from evil. Don't repay evil for evil. Those are all things that we've seen here. If you repay evil for evil, insult for insult, this is saying you're not going to have a good day. Do you have that kind of life when 
You don't turn away your tongue from evil when your tongue is used to spew out evil words, when you re- you're out to retaliate, when you're out for revenge. You won't receive this blessing. You're going to be hating life. You're going to be bitter, vengeful. But we come right back to this simple, ordinary, two-word piece of advice that we've been seeing right through this section. And that is, do good. Do good. This is just ordinary, doing good. Chapter 2, verse 12, that they might see your good deeds. Chapter 2, verse 15, doing good silences your enemies. Chapter 2, verse 20, servants, do good. Chapter 3, verse 6, wives, do good. Now, we have to make sure we point out here that we don't do good in order to get to heaven. We need to be clear on that. We we trust in the good that Jesus did once and for all on the cross. That's what we have our faith in. That's what we rely on. Because our own good deeds are like filthy rags, right, without Christ. But now that you are a believer, your posture is to be a do-gooder. Your posture is to be a do-gooder. Christian believer... Christian believer, even who might be in the middle of a hard season because you're trying to follow God, you can, even now, love life and see good days. You can, even now, love life and see good days in your circumstances. Here's what needs to happen for that. Do good and seek peace. Don't be known as a, as a disorderly and unruly rebel. Be known as a peacemaker as a citizen, as a worker, as a spouse. Be known as a peace seeker and a peace pursuer and a peacemaker. If you do good and seek peace, if that is your posture, you will be loving life and seeing good days. That's God's promise. And verse 12 is just a, just a wonderful, grace-filled, I kind of thought of it as just bonus material. You don't have to say that, but here it is. You can be assured that God's got your back. You can be assured that God's got your back. He sees you, he hears you, and he makes all things right. This is a wonderful promise. As you're doing the right thing, even while you're going through the dog days of living in this world, you can be assured of his face, of this fact, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. You can be assured of this fact, that he sees you, that he cares for you, and when you cry out to him, even though... Even just to make it through this day, that's very difficult and very hard. The promise is that his ears are open to your prayer. Isn't that comforting? You're trying to do good, but life is hard. And you're not seeing maybe the reason for all your suffering while you're in the middle of it. You're having trouble focusing on the reward at the end. People are against you, doing evil. They're insulting you. Well, you can be assured that God has his ears open to you. God never puts his hands over his ears as you're crying out to him. And evil won't win the day. He makes all things right. The face of the Lord, this would be fun to follow through every time the face of the Lord is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about God in his anger, and his wrath. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So keep, this is the word for you, brother and sister Christian, keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Do you want to see light? 
you want to love life and see good days? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Repay evil with blessing. Do good. Seek peace. This is God's calling for us as believers. For to this you were called. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you. This is, um, this is such a, a practical, a relevant, and encouraging word. Lord, we know that if we truly seek to live in a, in a godly way, in a way that honors you, in this present world, we know that we will face hostility, we will face opposition, People will come against us. They will speak evil against us even though we are seeking to do good. So Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would uh, indeed press this word into our hearts so that when those things are happening to us, so when then we, even when we can't see the end, that we would remember these things. That we would remember this radical calling that you have not only just given us and left us on our own to try to do, but that you have enabled us to do, strengthened us to do, shown us an example of how to do it in the person of Christ, given us of your spirit to, 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 to strengthen us and to, and to help us to, to do that, to swim against the culture, but to do it in a respectful and kind way, even as we'll learn more about next week, Lord willing. So Father, I pray that you would help us, enable, enable us for this task. We thank you For your grace, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our our Savior, the one who suffered for us, the one who died in our place. Help us to look to him who endured the cross for the joy set before him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great to have a lot of visitors here, and uh, make sure you take a chance to say hi to Trevor and Norma on your way out today, and to their family. It's good to have you all here today as well. Listen to this benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day. You're dismissed.